So we are still in 1 Corinthians. Um, in 1 Corinthians today, we're going to be talking about the Lord's Supper. Uh, and it goes by a bunch of names, and you've probably experienced it if you've been around Christians for any amount of time. The Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist, possibly. Uh, and it's an interesting phenomenon in most churches that I've been to, Christian churches. Uh, and, and this is why. I think we all want to feel God's presence, Right? I mean, I've heard a lot of people say that to me, how I just, I don't feel close to God right now. I want to feel close to him. Um, I've wanted the same thing for my own life. Sometimes we feel his presence when we're reading, meditating, and reflecting on his word. Sometimes we feel his presence when we pray. Uh, these are both areas that even this last week, I've had people uh, in this room share with me of times that they've felt the Lord's presence during these times. But I don't often hear people share that they feel the Lord's presence in the Lord's Supper. It's kind of this old, ancient thing uh, that Christians do. I've heard and honestly felt myself that we feel the Lord's presence more often when we're singing songs that capture our emotions. And we're like, man, if, if church is really about feeling the Lord's presence, and I don't really feel it here, couldn't we replace this with songs? where I do feel his presence, with prayer, where I do feel his presence, with the preaching of this word, maybe, I don't know, you don't want longer sermons, I know, but, uh, you know, maybe I do, no, I'll sneak in another few minutes. Now, so the question resides, why, why do we do this? Why do we do this ancient rite, where we break bread, pour wine, and we serve one another? Now, I can give kind of the straightforward, uh, easiest answers to give, and they would be, in some sense, right. Uh, Jesus commanded us to do it, and it's very important to uh, follow Jesus' commands. I think we would all agree. Uh, second, it's also a practice of the ancient church. Uh, and historical practices of the church shouldn't be discarded lightly. That would be kind of foolish until we understand what we're trying to do in them. I think what we're going to see today, though, in 1 Corinthians 11 is that Paul is willing to pull back the curtain a little bit and explain to us why this is so important. Why the Lord's Supper, partaking of his body and his blood, should actually be one of the ways where we feel Christ's presence most intimately. But we, it's easy to forget. <laughs> it's easy to lose track of. And so... Uh, I hope that today we can learn from God's word and we can see that uh, the, the highlights that Paul is going to make to the Corinthians is that the reason that we do the Lord's Supper is because it unites us to one another and it unites us to Jesus. And that's going to be our two points today. It unites us to one another and it unites us to Jesus. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word, which comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 17, going to the end of the chapter. 1 Corinthians 11 starting in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No. 
I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink, as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the rest of the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This ends the reading of God's word. Uh, It nourishes us, uh, it feeds us, and it sustains us. May the Holy Spirit do it for us today by his power. Please be seated. So in exploring 1 Corinthians for answers of the why of the Lord's Supper, we're going to see Paul point out two things that I highlighted, that it unites us to one another and that it unites us to Jesus. And in some sense, they actually follow one another. uh, And we're going to see this as we develop it. It unites us to one another because it unites us to Jesus is maybe a better way to say it. So first, the Lord's Supper unites us to one another. It's clear in this passage that the Corinthians were were divided about something. And if you've been around for much of the sermon series, you might realize that they were divided about a lot of things. It's shown up time and time again throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians. If you were to just flip back some pages in your Bible, you would see it over and over and over and over again. Paul saying that there's all these divisions. And so here again in, in verse 17 I do not commend you, verse 18, because there are these divisions among you. What were these divisions that Paul's talking about right here? In verse 21, when you come together, one gets drunk and another goes hungry. The idea is this in Corinth. uh, Wealthy people, when they invited guests over to their house, often had multiple rooms uh, in their house, A, and then multiple rooms to dine in. So they might have what you, we consider today like a formal dining room uh, where their guests would come. And if there were any servants or those of lower class that accompanied with them, there was another room that was left for them. And so in the formal dining room, you might say the fine wines, the best food is served. Uh, and in the informal dining room, maybe the house wine uh, and just enough. It's not a feast per se, but it is sustenance. This was commonplace accepted in Corinth. If we lived there, you would understand that. If you were invited to someone's house and you knew kind of their background, you'd be like, okay, I know you would be preparing yourself for where you would eat. Maybe it would be in the formal dining room, or maybe you'd go like, no, that's not where I go. Now, the interesting part for us is that it seems like the Corinthians were also doing this in their church services. And to make sense of that, you have to understand that uh, in Corinth, they didn't meet in a church building like this. They met in someone's home. And so when 
They were handed down this tradition from Paul, from Jesus, where they were supposed to eat uh, a supper of the Lord, and the wealthy person was hosting all of these people in their house, uh, and they had the space for it. They said, I'd love to have these people over. They said, well, there's got to be some order here. We're going to use the order that we use in our culture. Some of you are going to eat in this room. Some of you are going to eat over here. The servants of the house would have understood that certain food goes one way and certain food goes another. Nobody probably would have been that surprised. Until Paul writes, I do not commend you. There's something that you are doing with this meal that is fundamentally at odds with what it means. This meal was intended to break down barriers between brothers and sisters in Christ, to create a shared common experience, not to further isolate. Have you ever felt like you did not belong in a conversation, like you're just too out of your depth? Something that's always been exceptionally difficult uh, for me is that as a man, watching sports has not been that enticing to me. I just don't care. Now, in middle school, that was difficult, right? Uh, in middle school, I did what I was supposed to. I, like, watched the games. I collected the football cards. I, like, tried to talk about the stats. But in reality, I was just bored out of my mind every time doing it. Now, a couple of things happened, if I can rewind to the middle school uh, stage of self, uh, is that eventually, I, like, I, at first, I harbored a little bit of shame about it, right? I'm not who I should be. I'm not with the cool crowd. I'm not figuring out the right things. I'm always out of depth in my conversation because I just don't care to learn more. And then eventually that progressed to um, a little bit of self-righteousness about those meatheads don't even have any real conversations anyway. I don't need to hang with them. I've got my own people. I could use this situation (laughs) to then create my own camp to live in, right? Now, as middle school is, there's always that healthy dynamic of uh, exchanging uh, humiliation. Uh, And so you're always trying to humiliate each other. And so there is a real sense where maybe I was made fun of by them as well, and I was also returning uh, the making fun of. But it created dividing walls of hostility. The lunchroom in middle school is no different, and I think I can identify uh, with most people who have ever experienced it. You know, you grab your tray of food, and you turn around, um, and you're like, man, where am I going to go? And like, first day of a new school, is this forever? Like, is the social order still going to determine where I'm placed so that I can never move? Or is there this possibility of moving from tables and so experiencing a better life? These divisions among us start at an early age. We divide and we separate and we organize around our camps, reaffirming ourselves and uh, villainizing the other. You know, in Ephesians, it says that Jesus came to break down dividing walls of hostility. He came to break down these dividing walls that exist all throughout humanity. Now, in Ephesians, in in, in Ephesus' case, Um, It was specifically religious divisions. I mean, it's between Jew and Gentile, or maybe ethnic decisions is a better way to say it. These these ethnic distinctions that separated them so fiercely, Jesus said, I'm coming to fix that. 
And I think in our day, we have very serious divisions, very serious hostilities, very serious dividing walls that separate us. And everybody's longing for an answer. What's a solution? You know what Paul said the solution was? Eating together. (laughs) Now, we can actually kind of understand this. Uh, If you think back to the Corinthian class distinctions, um, you know, there's something to be invited to someone's house that is way classier than you are. You know, like you get the invitation and you just suddenly realize like, oh man, this is going to be a mistake. Uh, I don't know, maybe like I chew with my mouth open. I don't know which fork to use. They have cloth napkins. No, I'm just... But I'm being serious. Like, there's this, and I hope you've experienced it somewhere where you're like, man, I am out of my depth. And not the flip side, I hope you've experienced the other way. I hope you've experienced uh, sharing a meal with somebody where you're like, this person has zero manners at all. Like, they just started eating before we were all down. Like, they got their food and they were just like, I'm done. Are you ready to go? And you're like, what? I, I thought we were like sharing lunch. There's these tendencies for us to, um, isolate along that, and we're like, what's going to break down these barriers? And I just, I wonder if you've ever shared a meal with somebody that you deeply disagree with. And there's something interesting about this process uh, that, I, that I can reflect on in our current cultural climate. It's that, generally speaking, sharing a meal with someone uh, a lot, doesn't allow you to carry the same sort of vitriol that you would have for a particular view that they have um, when they're in your home, as compared to, let's say, Facebook. You read someone's view posted out there on Facebook, and immediately, man, it can set something off in you. <laughs> it doesn't take much. It can take 140 characters, and you're just, like, riled up immediately. Now, that can happen in our homes, too. Uh, but again, there's this kind of um, cycle of, of, of protection that happens when we share a meal with someone. And it's that on the one hand, the person experiencing the generosity is a little bit more careful with their words. They don't just uh, post unqu- or say unqualified or rude things, especially on first meeting. They establish their relationship first. And then you might have serious conversations once mutual respect is established. And then it's also, as a host, you have certain responsibilities to absorb certain things and look past them, to ignore them and move on. There's something about eating meals together that breaks down barriers. But this is something that everybody knows. You don't particularly have to be a Christian to share in this viewpoint. So what about the Lord's table? And this is where in a much deep, I mean, on a surface level sense, Paul's saying the same thing. Like, this is supposed to be a meal where you come together and you share. And so this, um, this experience of eating together should break down some barriers on its own. And yet he's going to say that it's much deeper because of who the host is. You see, the person hosting us at this table is not Trinity Church. It's not Zach. It's not our denomination. It's Jesus Christ himself. And so the reason that it unites us all together is because we look around at this table and we say, we were all invited here. None of us has a right 
to it. All of us are coming by his grace alone. This community will have disagreements and divisions. It's just a micro scale. If we look around this room, uh, you're going to disagree with some people in this room. And actually, if we don't know each other well enough to know where we disagree, that would actually reveal another problem in our church, which I don't have time to talk about today. But we should know each other well enough that we actually know where we disagree and that coming to this table actually signifies something. We can be like, man, I really disagree with that person, and yet we're both coming to Jesus to be fed by him. We have something that binds us together that is more powerful than our disagreements. And both of us are willing to yield it when we come, take, and eat. There's something about the Lord's table that unites us to one another, and that should make it meaningful. As we line up at the tables and we look around at all the other people, we should feel the emotion of being um, all debtors to Christ, coming forward together, that Christ has called these people in this room, and not only this one, but also La Travesia that meets after us, and the churches meeting around this island and around the globe, that all partake of his body and blood, that all of them, although we're imperfect, profess that we all yield to Jesus. He is our Lord and our King, that we all desperately need him. We don't have it figured out. The Lord's table unites us to each other. Now, why this happens is because, and I've, I've already like leaned into it, because it unites us to Jesus. So we're going to focus a little bit more on that. Uh, if you were to look at verse 26, Paul says that when you do communion, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And proclaiming the Lord's death is the motivating factor for coming to this meal, that there's something about this proclamation that makes us want to come. And this is actually a little bit difficult for, under, to under, for us to understand. There's something about this proclamation, this taking and eating, that's real, that's tangible, that's not just spiritual, it's not just physical. It's both. Now, what's real about it? Or does Paul agree with me, maybe? Uh, at verse 30, he can say that it's so real that when you misuse it, some of you are weak and ill and have died. Because in verse 27, they partook in an unworthy manner. And although I'm really tempted to go down a lot of different rabbit holes and explore uh, some of what Paul is saying here, uh, the basic idea is, is that either the people that are partaking are not discerning um, one another, and so they're saying, it's actually okay for me to discriminate against the poor and isolate them into another room, and they're failing in that way, and there's a real judgment that comes from saying one thing with your actions here and then doing another thing with your actions over here. And then also Paul is saying that there is real judgment for you thinking that this is meaningless. That there's not a real participation with Jesus, with his body and his blood. There's a helpful comparison with the Lord's Supper to that of marriage that I've heard. Of course, when you're married, you declare your vows before God and others. You sign on the dotted line on a legal document. But there's something about the proclamation of marriage in the consummation of marriage that's fundamentally different. 
It's not a one-time event. It continues. It nourishes. It says something. It redeclares the vows, reaffirms the vows. And it's misuse, it's neglect, it's abandonment comes with serious consequences. It can ruin a marriage. When Jesus says, this is my body, take and eat. This is my blood, take and drink. He's asking you to participate in his body in a way that reaffirms, nourishes, redeclares the true things in a tangible, tasteable, fleshly way. So what exactly about his body are we participating in, though? Well, he says it's broken, right? And he said his blood is spilt. And we need this reminder. We need this reminder that Christ is for us and not against us, that the Son of God, God himself, became man. He took on a fleshly existence, and he was willing to subject himself to the horrors of this world. Unless we forget, let me just rattle off some of the horrors that he experienced. False accusations, mob justice, kangaroo courts, corrupt law enforcers, betrayal by friends, whips with shards of pottery in them, blows on his face, spit on, stripped naked and exposed, crown of thorns, ridiculed, mocked, and murdered in one of the most painful ways that humanity has yet conceived of how to end someone's life. It was a fleshly, real experience for him. It wasn't just something he pretended to do. It wasn't something that was just mystical and spiritual. Jesus died for you. But it isn't simply a reminder of this thing that happened 2,000 years ago when we do this. It's actually an invitation to participate in his glorified body here and now. The body that we participate in here um, isn't the re-sacrificed body of Christ. It's actually the Holy Spirit opening the throne rooms of heaven and saying, Jesus is here face to face eating with you. He handed you the bread. He handed you the wine. He says, I'm here, and these promises that I made 2,000 years ago are alive and real for you. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You know that yearning to feel God in his word and in prayer? You know that deep desire we have to have something tangible of God? And Jesus says, this is my body for you. There's just something beautiful here about Jesus, and I'm just going to kind of keep reiterating because I can't say it enough, and I can't overstate it. Um, Have you ever heard that Bible verse that says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the Father? And generally, we take that to mean the Bible, like, oh, the Bible is what sustains me. But if you were to, you know, read through your New Testament again, and you would also see that someone else is called the Word of God, and that's Jesus, and that Jesus is also called the bread of life. And that Jesus is the one who sustains us through his word, yes, but also gives us tangible reasons because he understands that we don't just need another religion, another philosophy, um, another cognitive thing to think through. We need something that touches our flesh and bones because that is what we are. 
We don't want to be just removed from this world to escape from it. We want to be with God here and now. I've heard some people say that they're afraid of celebrating the Lord's Supper more frequently. Um, you know, we used to do this weekly, and then pandemic happened, and we made some changes, you know. Um, and then we hope someday to get back to, to weekly communion. And, and I've been at churches that have done it monthly and quarterly, um, or even less frequently than that. And, and some of the concerns that people have are if, if we celebrate it more often, it will lose uh, what's special about it. It'll become mundane, ordinary. Sometimes they draw the comparison between baptism. You know, we only do baptism once. Like, how often do we really need the Lord's Supper? And if I can rewind maybe to my analogy with marriage, uh, you might say that baptism is like the wedding day. You only do one. It's a big celebration, and it's huge, and we understand its significance immediately. But the Lord's Supper is a little bit more tangible. A little bit more fleshly. There is a proclamation in this fleshly marital union that is a little mysterious. Paul can say that it's profound. And yet it nourishes nonetheless. And Paul will say, similarly, that what's happening here in the Lord's Supper is mysterious in a way. It's profound. And yet it really and truly nourishes. It really and truly is God for you. It really and truly is the risen Christ inviting you to eat with him. The Lord's Supper not only unites us to one another, but unites us to Jesus in a fleshly and tangible way way. When God had created man, he created him good and in his presence. You know, like uh, the Garden of Eden, we might say, uh, there's two spheres. There's the physical and the spiritual. And in the Garden of Eden, they were one and the same. God walked with man in the cool of the garden. But when man rebelled uh, and chose his own way, there was a separation between the physical and the spiritual, a permanent separation, a distance that could not be crossed, except for when God condescended. And we see that through some of the Old Testament. We see God condescending to make covenants with his people. And in these covenant things, he, he creates tabernacles and temples uh, in, in places where, where they can be made right with God and they can once again experience the physical and spiritual in their lives here and now. But what we see time and time again is that uh, humanity can't do it. It continues to run away from God. It continues to run into physical only. It doesn't want the overlap of the spheres. We needed something different. We needed a change. We needed new hearts. We needed to be made alive. When Jesus says, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. What he's saying is, I did it. I reunited the spiritual and the physical again in my very body. I took it to the cross and into death 
to reunite not just my own body, but all those who are identified with me. So that all of us will one day partake again in the full overlap, face-to-face looking at God, walking with him in the cool of the garden, with the spiritual and physical reunited and not separated from our God and King. And in this time and in this space, Jesus has said, I want to give you a taste of that now. Here's my body where heaven and earth met. Take and eat. Here's my blood that covers you. Take and drink. In this little glimpse of the physical and the spiritual, we see that Jesus sees us. As human beings, dignified in our bodies that don't just need um, mental feeding. We don't just need to read words. We actually need bread. We need food that feeds our bodies. We need Jesus himself. The Lord's Supper is not just any other meal. It is Jesus' meal inviting you to participate in his very body, to be united to him, to have it redeclared over you, all of these things that we do in our worship service, to have it reset in a way that you can taste, not just that you have to think about, not just that you have to say, but a way that you can taste and smell a tangible, fleshly, earthly proclamation that Jesus is Lord.